All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Welcome back, everyone. We're trucking along. It's hard to believe it's nearly March. (laughs) It's super hard to believe that it's officially Pisces season. Sorry. Shameless freaking plug. Yay. I mean, like, I mean, I guess it was cool being a part of that HB Aquarius, but like, yay, it's my time to shine. Anywho, hope all of you are as well in your neck of the woods as I obviously am here in anywhere USA as I get ready to Tootsie Shuffle into my birthday season. <sighs> Anywho, can't wait for spring, you know. As I told you like a couple of episodes ago, I'm going to be taking the time to to also plug your small businesses on the show. Like, hey, if you got one, let me know. And I'm totally going to spread the word through our listenership. Let's work together. So this week is for our pet parent listeners in the Denver metropolitan area. If you're in the market for a delightful pet grooming and pet sitting experience, please contact Candace at Precious Pets. Grooming hours are from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Closed days vary. Uh, To book your appointments, you can contact her at PreciousPets5280 at yahoo.com. Also, you can find her through the Facebook page, Precious Pets 5280. All of her links will be listed in the description box. I'd like to say thank you to Candace, as she has been a longtime listener, a member of the What Had Happened family. I also want to take the time to say, you know what time it is. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Welcome back, Silver Springs, Potomac. Baltimore, Bethesda, and Hyattsville, Maryland. Good to see you again, Phoenix, Queens, uh, Queen Creek, Tucson, Gilbert, and Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Claremore, Broken Arrow, and uh, Chickataw, Oklahoma. What's poppin'? Danville, Louisville, Winchester, Paducah, Lexington, and Hazard, Kentucky. So good to have you back, El Dorado, Ola, uh, Moralton, Pocahontas, Casa, and Greenbrier, Arkansas. How goes it, Winfield, Branchland, Martinsburg, Charleston, St. Albans, and Morgantown, West Virginia? Thanks for listening, Boise, Council, Meridian, Pocatello, Sandpoint, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Thank you for coming back, Finland, Guam, Kenya, Serbia, Cyprus, St. Martin, Malta, and Hungary. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and all of the other social accounts. You know I really don't mess with that much. Shame, shame, shame. You know my name. It's Kimberly. You can also hit me up at the email address if you have a crime that you would like to hear me discuss. Again, like I said, if I've covered something and you actually know what it do or you're associated with it and you like to let me know how I handled myself and or the telling of the case or I need to make some redactions or corrections, let me know. Also, be nice, though, please, because, like, please. <laughs> 
you know, uh, all of these links as well as today's spotlight small business and my references can be found in the description box per the usual. Now, last episode, I discussed serial rapist and murderer Joji Abara, who raped hundreds and murdered two foreign hostesses in Tokyo, Japan. <sighs> For today's, I'm going to say, tell your kids not to, like, be listening. If your kids are watching, this is not the episode. Um, now, if your children are older, like teenagers or whatever, yeah. You got little kids. This is not what you need to be listening to while you're vacuuming and doing household chores and the littles are running around. Because I'm going to be throwing out a fuck ton of racial epithets. Not happy about it. But it is in telling of this story. And it's very important to me to be as authentic and true to what happened period so I've told you time and time again that there are stories that live rent free in my heart and my mind and um yeah there's stuff that happened before me you know history that I've known about for a long time We've known about Emmett Till. We learned about him in school. But uh, what we didn't talk about when I was in school was what was happening when I was seven years old. And to me, this case was essentially akin to what happened to Emmett Till, similarly. So... When I was a seven-year-old girl living in New Jersey at the time of this senseless murder just across the river in Brooklyn, um, I never forgot it. I'll never forget it. And um, it's it's a very important story to tell. So I'm going to be telling you what had happened to Yusuf. Excuse me, I gotta readjust myself in my seat. Okay. Yusuf Kareem Hawkins, the second of three sons, was born March 19th, 1973 in in the East New York neighborhood of Brooklyn to Moses Stewart and Diane Hawkins. The neighborhood the family lived in, which sits in the eastern section of the New York borough of Brooklyn, was a blended diasporan, black, Puerto Rican, and Dominican community. Although East New York would be considered a black and brown community, when whites entered their neighborhood, they weren't bothered or accosted because they were normally either police Or customers coming to that section of Brooklyn to buy illicit substances, which were rampant throughout all of the boroughs if we're being straight with one another. So let's not pretend like this was simply something that was happening in those neighborhoods. I'm going to say that right now off the bat. So there's that. So uh, 
when the young couple's third son, Amir, was roughly 17 months old, Moses walked away from the family. The Hawkins boys, Freddie, Yusuf, and Amir, were inseparable, although Yusuf and baby brother Amir, being closer in age, played and hung out together more. The boys were always looking after one another and sticking together. The family of four lived together in the multi-generational homestead of their grandmother, Rosalie Hawkins. In another apartment in the building resided two cousins and an aunt. So it was a very close-knit feeling. Growing up, the Hawkins boys were friends with neighbors Christopher Graham, Luther, Sylve Luther Sylvester, Troy Banner, and Claude Sanford. Uh, Sanford, yes, sorry. The boys <clears throat> would spend their time playing basketball and riding their bikes throughout the boroughs of New York, zipping around from East New York to Central Park and many points between. The Hawkins boys and their neighborhood friends were good kids. While the civil rights movement had come and gone, and we as a country were supposed to be moving forward racially, racial equality, uh, with racial, towards racial equality, there were a series of, of events that occurred in New York, specifically, throughout the 80s <clears throat> that reminded everyone, especially those in the African American community, that we hadn't progressed quite as far as we had hoped we would 20 years prior. June 1982, 34-year-old transit worker Willie Turks from Far Rockaway, Queens, and two co-workers, Dennis Dixon and Donald Cooper, were eating at a local bagel shop in the Gravesend, Sheepshead Bay area of Brooklyn. Afterwards, the trio got into the car. Immediately, they were swarmed by a group of angry white teens screaming racial epithets. The teens dragged Willie, Dennis, and Donald from the car and beat the men. Dennis and Donald were able to escape while Willie was dragged into the middle of the street and beaten to death. His cause of death? Fractured skull. December 1986, four men, Michael Griffith, Curtis Sylvester, Timothy Grimes, and Cedric Sandiford. See, that's why I was like, well because I knew there was another last name in the script that was similar. And I was like, wait, did I do that wrong? No, 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 I did that right. So Cedric Sandiford were traveling from Brooklyn to Queens to pick up the paycheck of Michael Griffith. So he had like bummed a ride with the friend, right? Because um, Curtis Sylvester was the one with the car. So as the group headed to pick up the paycheck in the wee hours, it was like late at night, Curtis Sylvester's car unfortunately broke down. So he decided to stay with the car while Michael, Cedric, and Timothy walked three miles north in search of a payphone. As soon as the trio entered Howard Beach, they were accosted by the locals, which, I'm sorry, it was December 20th, 1986. <clears throat> and it was like roughly 12.30 in the morning when they entered Howard Beach were people doing loitering about outside i'm sorry it's cold get your ass in the house 
All this shit could have been avoided if you had your ass in the house at the appropriate time. I'm just saying, it's a little bit late to be loitering on a cold-ass December night. Anyways, so they start being accosted by locals who are primarily men, who are men, not primarily, they were men, okay? So tired and hungry, the men stopped into a pizzeria for like a quick slice. That's the American way, okay? And as they ate, a group of white teenage males wielding baseball bats, tire irons, and tree limbs gathered outside the pizzeria, and they're seething. They attacked the men as soon as they exited the shop. The men were beaten savagely, Timothy escaping after pulling a knife on his attackers. Michael, attempting to flee the ambush, ran onto the nearby Belt Parkway, where he was struck and killed by a vehicle. In April 1989, police did numerous sweeps, eventually wrongfully convicting five black youths who ended up serving 13 years before being exonerated after the brutal, aggravated rape of a white female jogger in Central Park. I said all of that to say that there were absolutely areas that hadn't progressed racially in the boroughs and tensions were super high throughout, especially after what happened in Central Park. Before that, they were coming up with a myriad of excuses like well what was he doing running out in the middle of the in the middle of the parkway or well what was he doing being chased by a mob of teenagers wielding weapons with the intention of beating the brakes and then the life out of these people what were the teenagers who were in the Sheep's Head Bay area doing, dragging three men from a car and then beating one man so badly that he died of a skull fracture. What the fuck? Let's not victim shame here or blame, but you know what? This was decades ago, so that's exactly what the fuck they were doing. I said it. So, in January 1989, Moses Stewart returned and reconciled with his family. The boys were happy, and so was Diane. Yusuf was excited to have the father he hadn't known around. One thing about Yusuf was he was extremely intelligent and he had plans on becoming an engineer of some sort. So he was ecstatic to have Moses check out East New York School of Transit Technology, where he was slated to attend in the fall. The summer had gone by, you know, like without any hiccups, you know, it was normal. And then August 23rd, 1989 happened. It started out like any other day. Yusuf, Amir, Christopher, and Luther hung out. The boys played some basketball at 213 Park, where Southpaw Yusuf was difficult to guard. 
after playing, the boys walked to their favorite Chinese restaurant on New Lots Avenue, where Yusuf ordered his and my mother's favorite four chicken wings and pork fried rice. It's like a go-to, okay? Especially on the East Coast, like, goodness gracious. Afterwards, Christopher suggested that they go back to his home to watch videos that he'd rented. The videos were Mississippi Burning and Naked Gun. The four friends had just begun watching Mississippi Burning when Troy Banner knocked on the door. After asking what his friends were up to, Troy asked if they wanted to tag along with him to Bensonhurst, where he was going to look at a used Pontiac he'd found in the newspaper. The friends said sure, but Chris needed to return the movie rentals. It was decided that Amir was going to walk with Chris, and when they got back, they'd all travel to Bensonhurst. Yusuf, Luther, Claude, and Troy sat on the front stoop for a few before Troy ran into his apartment and back outside again. Troy had asked his father um, to take them, basically he'd asked his father to take he and his friends to Bensonhurst, but he said no because it was too late in the evening. Not deterred, Troy was adamant he wanted to see the Pontiac. He told his friends there wasn't enough time to wait for Chris and Amir to return from the video rental store, insisting that they just take the train to and fro and get it over with. So the four ventured off into the night towards the station on New Lots Avenue and took the in-train for the hour 20-minute ride into Bensonhurst. They had no idea what would be waiting beyond the subway entrance of 20th Avenue and Bensonhurst when they'd arrive. Because although both of these neighborhoods are inside of Brooklyn, they they couldn't have been, they were worlds apart, okay? Uh, this crew of kids coming from East New York had no idea about the neighborhood that they were going into and especially the fact that they were going in all I think also the fact that they were going into this neighborhood after dark later in the evening they had no idea the reputation and the people and their beliefs and thoughts I need to take a sip real quick um no clue. So, Bensonhurst is a neighborhood in the southwestern section of the New York borough of Brooklyn. In the early 20th century, the neighborhood of Bensonhurst was a blend of Italian and Jewish emigrants. Post-World War II, the neighborhood saw a huge influx of southern Italians and Sicilians emigrating and moving into the neighborhood. Now, for a long time, walking through Bensonhurst was like being transported to the old country. Similarly to the town Thor Christensen grew up in in California, Bensonhurst was steeped in Italian traditions and cultures. Like, I remember when Bensonhurst was known for the restaurants, the bakeries, 
the uh, the festivals. They used to have these amazing festivals annually where they celebrated their religion and their culture. Um, I mean, like, there was a lot of stuff that were, like, amazing about Bensonhurst because of the culture. I do remember that. But I also remembered that the culture didn't love outsiders. So, bakeries and shops providing the quali- the finest quality Italian goods made the neighborhood feel like they'd never left the old country. And while there may, while there are many wonderful aspects of the neighborhood at that time because of these things, there were also a few darker elements. First, the organized elephant in the room is, of course, that organized crime had operated in the neighborhood for decades just like it did in many other neighborhoods and boroughs. If you guys are into your mob crime history, you know what I'm talking about. Oy, it's coming out of me. The, the East Coast really just comes out real thick. Secondly, and listen to my words and hear me clearly as I try to explain this as like coolly and chilly as possible. So the insularness of the neighborhood, right? Because they were a white-only community, pretty much. Like, there was, like, a handful of minorities, but for the most part, they were a white-only community because and they were insulated in that community as immigrants and uh, newly, you know, generational Americans who you know descended from these people who immigrated okay um the insularness of the neighborhood emboldened some people in the community to feel and act upon their senses of superiority and racist views of minority groups and there were like i said there were a very small amount of minorities who lived in the community but for the most part, the neighbor the neighborhood prescribed to keeping, you know, their area whites only. As it would happen, one girl in the neighborhood would ruffle, would be ruffling a lot of feathers in the neighborhood. Gina Feliciano was about to turn 18 years old, and word on the block was Gina wanted to invite her black and Puerto Rican guy friends to her birthday party. Gina didn't fit into the mold the rest of the neighborhood thought that she should, you know, prescribe to. After dropping out of high school, Gina attended secretarial school where she befriended people of color. um, And she was exposed to things outside of Bensonhurst. She also, unfortunately, began experimenting with drugs and the whispers amongst her peers was about her addiction to crack and her sexual promiscuity. Uh, Also, the fact that she chose to hang out with people outside of the neighborhood. Like, all of these things were pissing people off. She, But she wasn't a fan favorite 
So when she began talking about integrating the neighborhood by way of her apartment, more whispers began. As the game of telephone went through the neighborhood, it was alleged that Gina threatened to have her black and Puerto Rican friends jump the group of neighborhood guys who were up in arms. One person in particular who was super irritated was Gina's ex, Keith Mondello. When Keith confronted Gina the night before her party, she told him nobody was going to stop her from having her friends come into the neighborhood and celebrate her birthday with her. Keith allegedly Keith allegedly called Gina a spick lover and a nigger lover. He also spat on the ground and walked away after telling Gina, you know, after she said what she said, he was like, yeah, we'll see. But to her, it was simply words. When Gina asked her neighborhood chum, Pasquale Rauchi, why everyone was so bent out of shape over her guest list, he told her that the out-of-neighborhood guests weren't welcome because they didn't belong in Bensonhurst. While Gina really wanted her friends to attend her party, she rethought her original stance and decided it was best to avoid the potential drama that would ensue if she allowed her friends to come to Bensonhurst. So Gina got a hold of her friends and told them it would be best if they didn't come and they agreed not to come because nobody wanted any bullshit. They really didn't want any problems. Okay? Of course, this was all unbeknownst to the neighborhood boys who were working themselves up into a tizzy at the thought of black and Puerto Rican guys coming into their neighborhood to hang out with one of their own, let alone the fact that now the neighborhood boys were rallying the troops because the rumor was the black and Puerto Rican guys were coming to fight. Now, while some milled about in front of the snacks and candy store where Gina lived in an apartment above the hangout. Roughly 20 more were hanging out in the schoolyard of nearby PS205, listening to music and waiting for whatever may happen. One of the teens present was Russell Gibbons, an African-American teenager who was raised in in the Bensonhurst community and had grown to be accepted as basically one of their own. Growing up in the community, he said he grew up a black kid in a white community when all he wanted was to be a white kid in a white community. So the homie, John Vento, runs up and tells Russell and other friends that there's going to be a fight in Bensonhurst that night because Gina was bringing 20 black and Puerto Ricans into the neighborhood to fight. So Russell runs over with Charlie Stressler to Charlie's home and obtained baseball bats, bringing them to the playground of PS205. Charlie then told everyone, if you want bats, the bats are there. When Yusuf and his friends exited the 20th Avenue subway station in Bensonhurst, they'd asked for directions. After walking a couple of blocks, they stopped into a small grocery store 
where Claude bought some batteries and film and Yusuf purchased a Snickers bar. As they began walking down the street, the boys stopped in front of the snacks and candy store on 68th Street to look up at to look up at the address. <sighs> on the script on the little piece of paper in the documentary Yusuf Hawkins Storm Over Brooklyn the address that was scribbled down was on 69th by the way so they weren't far so they look up and they're looking to see the address Gina is looking down from her window that faces the the snacks and candy side of the street which would be on 68th she notices what's happening and she sees that this group of four people that she doesn't know is like harmlessly passing by and looking up at like a piece of paper with an address on it to see to verify if it's where they need to be no it's not okay so they keep walking as Yusuf and his friends continued walking Keith allegedly turned to his friend John Vento and said these fucking niggers in this neighborhood I told her now she's gonna learn as this is happening, someone at the playground spotted Yusuf and his friends and said they're here. The teen boys all began to run towards 68th Street, some picking up baseball bats as they ran towards snacks and candy. Yusuf and his friends have now turned the corner when they realize that they're being chased by a large group with Keith Mondello and his friend Joey Fama in the front of the pack. As they ran to catch up with Yusuf and his friends, they passed a mother of, with two children as she was about to enter a phone booth. The angry group, shaking baseball bats, kept shouting at Keith, asking him if Yusuf and his friends were the boys Gina invited to her party. As the boys were huddled in this surreal moment, the angry group continued to yell and curse at the boys, asking him, asking them, quote, what are you niggers doing here? And accusing them of lying when they said that they were only in Bensonhurst because they wanted to buy a car. They continued berating Yusuf and his friends, accusing them of trying to come to the neighborhood and date the girls of their community. Since their truth was falling on deaf ears, Yusuf, Luther, Troy, and Claude knew the only way out of Bensonhurst would be to fight their way out knowing all too well that they were up against a hell of an ass whooping from this crowd. After Keith informed the group that they weren't the right boys, Keith backed away and to add just a little bit of lightness, I seriously envision Homer Simpson backing into the hedges or like moonwalking into the crowd that he rallied. Okay, but they're all riled the fuck up now at this point. And someone in the crowd yelled, let's club the niggers. No, let's shoot the niggers. That's when allegedly Joey Fama produced his 32 caliber gun and shot Yusuf, striking him twice in the chest. 
As soon as Joey shot Yusuf, the group quickly dispersed. Joey opting to run home and like change his clothes and then skip town immediately and run away to upstate New York while the others stuck around the neighborhood. Now, the woman in the phone booth with her two children, she called 911 immediately telling dispatch that a large group of, quote, white boys had run past her and that someone in the group had shot, quote, a black man. Which is where, I mean, that she didn't know that Yusuf was just a child himself. But, you know, it's really problematic when you progress people's ages, especially like that. Um, it's like hypersexualizing young girls and things of that nature. But that's for another time. When emergency responders arrived, you, arrived Yusuf still had a faint heartbeat. The EMT was hopeful Yusuf would pull through as they took him to Mimonde's. See, I'm just going to say that really fast because I know I messed that up. Hospital where he was pronounced dead. The following day, Yusuf's father, Moses, stood before news cameras and pleaded for justice. Afterwards, as various media and press junkets attempted to get their questions answered, for bylines in the 10 o'clock news hour, Moses was able, they were, they put him in contact with civil rights activist, Reverend Al Sharpton. Because when they asked, you know, hey, who do you want to represent your family during this time? You know, that was who Moses thought of. Who. When Moses asked Reverend Sharpton to be a spokesperson for the family following Yusuf's murder, the Reverend initially like kind of declined. He'd recently been embroiled in the Tawana Brawley case where the African-American teenager claimed to have been abducted and raped by six white men, one of which was a police officer, only to learn that it was like an elaborate lie constructed by the girl. And... Al Sharpton was right up in the forefront asking for justice for Tawana and everybody else was as well until it came out that it was a lie. And so he had egg on his face and people were looking at him with a side eye. Now the African-American community kind of just like brushed that one off as a loss, but he was definitely, it was definitely something that his naysayers used as like a tick mark against him for sure. So the controversy turned Al Sharpton into a laughing stock, and he thought it best if the family found a different spokesperson. But Moses assured Reverend Sharpton that he was in fact the person whose voice bellowed loud enough to demand justice for Yusuf on behalf of the family because he wouldn't sell them out. That afternoon, the Reverend met with the family. As family and neighbors extended the length of the street they lived on, Reverend Sharpton led everyone in prayer for news cameras and also to deliver a message to the people of Bensonhurst. Prepare for protesting. It's coming, bitches. Yeah. That's, that that was pretty much what his message was. Until we get justice for Yusuf, it's going down. Because 
we've let this slide. In 1982 with Willie Turks. In 1986 with Michael Griffith. In the way that we allowed a private citizen who may or may not have been a real estate mogul at the time, who was super prominent in the New York area to get on the news and put a bounty on the heads of the attackers of the jogger calling for essentially a lynch mob situation to go down. Um, yeah. We needed buckle up. It's going down. So after the 62nd precinct in Bensonhurst indicated that Yusuf's murder would be charged as a biased incident because of the use of the word nigger during the attacks, they hold a press conference. And Ed Koch, who had been the mayor at the time, in fact, he'd been mayor since 1978. Uh, nonetheless, during the time of this initial press conference where the charges of Yusuf's murder were going to be considered a hate crime because of the usage of the racial epithets during the mobbed attack, Ed Koch promoted the idea that the crime, while a bias case, which isn't tolerated, it could have been provoked due to a love triangle. So he was trying to get away from the fact that this was a racial incident and guide it towards Yusuf Hawkins being embroiled in some kind of misinterpreted love triangle that resulted in his murder. Huh. This wouldn't be the first time that Ed Koch had made incendiary and defamatory comments in regards to the African-American community that he served as their elected city official. Uh, I want to say it was during, I cannot, do not quote me for sure. I tried to find exactly when the quote was and exactly what the quote was, but I want to say that it was during the time of the sweeps that they were doing for the Central Park Five when the five young men they were teenagers when the five young men were ple- you know were screaming their innocence ed koch made some kind of smart ass comment on the news where he was like and then you have the grandmother saying oh but he was such a good boy but dot 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 well he wasn't so good because look at what he's done da 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 yeah whatever side eye lady essentially was what he was getting at and that kind of attitude towards a certain demographic of the people that you represent and then also verbalizing those personal thoughts and opinions which he was totally entitled to while holding public office were incendiary. It emboldened people. It gave people more tropey fodder to chew on 
and their discomfort with minorities. Period. So, the media began spinning the narrative that Yusuf's murder was possibly due to the actions of Gina Feliciano, making Gina the scapegoat. Now, while the family, Yusuf's family, knew for sure Gina, Gina Feliciano had absolutely nothing to do with this, and they stood behind her on this one, um, you know, they felt that it was absolutely racially motivated. But Reverend Sharpton deduced that the only way to find out for sure if Yusuf's murder was because of a love triangle, triangle mix-up or a racially motivated crime was to protest through the streets of Bensonhurst. Okay, now this was to see, to gauge the temperature of the people within that neighborhood. Because, alright, so if this was a killing due to some kind of love triangle and miscommunication and things of that nature, you would think that the people of Bensonhurst would come in support for justice for Yusuf. Right? Or, you know, something along those lines. They would they would try to calm this shit down, basically, by being in support of justice for this this young man. And they would be appalled that this young man was murdered in their neighborhood and, you know, try to mend fences and prove that racism was not a factor. Okay? So, activists also began flooding the home, showing their support and fighting for justice for Yusuf, including the Honorable Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. Uh, he would end up uh, eulogizing Yusuf at his funeral. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was also a prominent civil rights activist. Uh, mayoral candidate David Dinkins, who would later be elected as the first African-American mayor of New York City. And Mayor Ed Koch also paid their respects. Although Mayor Ed Koch did say, because this was also during an election season, that it would be in poor taste for people campaigning to basically try to profit votes and sympathy and gain support from this family, you know, all because of this election. But David Dinkins was like, no, I went because it was the right thing to do. As Reverend Sharpton began planning the march in, into Bensonhurst, Moses and Diane made funeral arrangements for their son, Yusuf. August 26th, three days after the murder of Yusuf, Freddie and Amir joined Reverend Al Sharpton and others as they marched throughout the streets of Bensonhurst. The marchers chanted Yusuf's name as they walked down the center of the street. On the sidewalk, 
some Benson Hursters display, displayed handmade signs asking for peace and promoting the love God has for all his children, black and white. Many others were enraged at the takeover of their streets by the marchers. Some taunted Reverend Sharpton, invoking the name of Tawana Brawley. People leaning out of their windows, shouting epithets as the marchers, at, um, at marchers, as crowds of Bensonhursters flooded the sidewalks. Go home, niggers, chanted here and there. Watermelons hoisted overhead. We're not racist. We just don't like black people, one resident proudly said to a news camera as he walked by. Following the first protest, it was evidently clear the murder of Yusuf was racially motivated. On August 29th, thousands of mourners filled the streets outside of the church that held Yusuf's funeral to say their final goodbyes to the 16-year-old boy. And Bensonhurst, when police officers went back to canvas the neighborhood, they returned to snacks to the snacks and candy store, you know, below Ms. Feliciano's apartment. On the wall, there was a collage of photos that had, like, all of the neighborhood kids on it. And um, after obtaining the collage, the officers were able to identify virtually all of the neighborhood kids in the collage that, you know, were involved in this mobbing. When Keith Mondello was initially questioned, he first tried to play it cool like a wise guy, but shortly into the interrogation was brought down several pegs. Realizing he was facing serious prison time, he began to tell detectives that Gina Feliciano invited 20 to 25 blacks to Bensonhurst to fight him and his neighborhood friends. He then said he gathered roughly a dozen friends just in case. By 8 p.m., there were 20 guys hanging out in front of the candy store, as well as guys parked on the street. He confessed to being the organizer of the lynch mob that confronted Yusuf and his three friends, thinking that they'd been invited into the neighborhood by Gina. Keith Mondello, Pascale Rauchi, and Charlie Stressler were charged with assault, riot, aggravated harassment, violation of civil rights, and possession of a weapon while police were still looking for Joey Fama. The neighborhood, it felt, was keeping him protected and hidden, and Reverend Sharpton was not having any of that bullshit. So he continued to organize protests throughout the streets of Bensonhurst, demanding the people of the community turn over Joey Fama. This insular group kept him safe for weeks, but the continual traffic of marchers protesting brought additional heat to the neighborhood. Law-abiding and not-so-law-abiding citizens conducting their organized crime didn't appreciate. Eventually, it said, but then Joe, okay, again, all the alleged, allegedly, Sammy the Bull Gravano had a meeting in where he helped facilitate Joey Fama turning himself in. Sidebar. Now, if you go to YouTube, 
and you put in Sammy the Bull Gravano and Vlad TV or Yusef Hawkins or something like that, somehow in that little three piece and a biscuit of words on YouTube, there's going to be a clip of an interview, like an hour plus long interview that Vlad does with Sammy the Bull. Now, if you know about Vlad, you know that Vlad does extensive research, like him or hate him, whatever. He does extensive research on the subjects that he interviews. Now, at the time of this interview, it was around the time of the documentary Yusuf Hawkins' A Storm Over Brooklyn dropping. And so Vlad had the fresh deets about how Sammy allegedly talked the family of Joey Fama and Joey Fama into turning himself over to the police because it was drawing too much heat on Bensonhurst, which is bad for business. Now, when he says this to Sammy the Bull, first, Sammy the Bull couldn't remember what Vlad was talking about, and he initially thought that Vlad was talking about the 1986 murder, or de- murder death of Michael Griffith and Howard Beach. So once Vlad recalibrates himself, he goes ahead and tells Sammy the Bull the story per the documentary. And Sammy the Bull says, I don't remember it happening like that. I don't remember it happening at all. I would never tell somebody to give up their freedom. So when I say allegedly, I say allegedly. Okay, because Sammy the Bull says he doesn't remember doing any of this. The documentary says that he was at a certain bar and also they had all sorts of details. So, okay. Nonetheless, whether Sammy the Bull had anything to do with it or not, Joey Fama eventually comes out of hiding and turns himself in. Joey Fama pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. Months later, there were six defendants assembled and brought to trial on charges that included unlawful imprisonment, menacing, rioting, weapons possession, and discrimination. Two of the six charged were Keith, uh, were Keith and Joey, who were both charged with second-degree murder. While on trial simultaneously, the two had separate juries. While undecided about whether Joseph Fama was guilty of shooting Yusuf Hawkins, the jury inevitably found him guilty of second-degree murder by depraved indifference wearily, on, and as well as guilty on 12 lesser charges, which included discrimination, menacing, riot, possession of a, wep- of a weapon, and, and unlawful imprisonment. The verdicts provided relief to Yusuf's family, although that they although they knew there were more mountains to climb, and not all juries think singularly. Meanwhile, back in Bensonhurst, people were pissed off, pissed off, just irate when you know the when that verdict came in. The following day. The jury in the Keith Mondello trial returned with a not guilty for second degree murder, but guilty for the dozen or so 
charges of discrimination, menacing, riot, possession of a weapon, so on and so forth. When the two were sentenced, Joseph Fama received 32 and two-thirds years to life, and Keith Mondello was sentenced to five and a third to 16 years. Keith would serve eight years in Attica, while Joseph Fama has been serving his time and was not found eligible for parole in 2022. So right now, he would technically be working on that two-thirds part, I believe, somewhere around there. He would be of that 32-year sentence, that 32-plus, that 32 and some change. Um, others who were tried following Joseph and Keith were John Vento, who was found guilty of unlawful imprisonment and served eight years, Joseph Serrano and Pasquale Rauchi would be found guilty of unlawful possessing what unlawfully possessing weapons and sentenced to 300 hours community service. Now I know that for sure for Joseph Serrano, I don't know about how many community service hours Pasquale Rauchi received, but I'm sure that it was probably the same. Charles Stressler, James Patino, and Steve Curary were acquitted of all charges and Russell Gibbons was not charged with anything because he cooperated with police and testified for the prosecution. During this time and into the beginning of January 1991, Reverend Al Sharpton continued to march throughout the streets of Bensonhurst. As everyone rallied in the playground area of PS 205 in Bensonhurst, um, it was like January. Uh, Reverend Sharpton was bum rushed. Okay. So PS 205, if you remember, is the same playground where the mob of kids were hanging out at, well, a group of the group. Because, you know, they were dispersed. Some were in front of the candy store. Some were hanging out in their cars, parked on the street in front of the candy store. Other kids were hanging out over there in the playground. So they would use this playground as a rallying part point, you know, whenever they would go in to Bensonhurst to protest. So on this particular day in 1991, Michael Riccardi bum-rushed the Reverend, quickly running up on him and plunging a knife into Reverend Sharpton's chest. Michael Riccardi was immediately restrained and Reverend Sharpton, who had pulled the knife out of his chest, was rushed to the hospital. Now, I mean, like everybody was like, like Moses was like, oh, my God, they done got they done hit Rev. You know, like it was it was a lot. And blood absolutely was like spurting out of this man's chest when he pulled that knife out. So, huh. Reverend Sharpton was rushed to the hospital. As his medical condition remained unknown, the protesters who rallied in Bensonhurst decided to continue with the plan set before the attack on Reverend Sharpton and do what they knew he'd want them to do, march. After recovering from his attack, when Mr. Riccardi was charged and sentenced 
for first-degree assault, wherein he faced 5 to 15 years in prison, Reverend Sharpton asked for leniency in his sentencing, citing that Mr. Riccardi's actions were based on the distorted media coverage on the civil rights activists' activities within the Bensonhurst community. Keith Mondello was released from prison in 1998. And, you know, he had said throughout that time when he got out that he really wanted to set up a meeting with Yusuf's parents so that he could properly apologize for, you know, his role in, you know, the death of Yusuf. And in 1999, Keith did have that meeting with Moses on television where he apologized, um, near, you know, for what happened nearly 10 years before. While Moses was on the fence with his ability to receive the apology and, you know, how he was going to take it all in, Diane would not participate in any such meetings, correspondence, or lend forgiveness to any of the men who killed her son, and she is totally entitled to that feeling. Throughout Moses' crusades for justice, he was extremely hard on Diane also. Um, he would tell her that she was basically being too soft with... Okay, so Diane was dealing with two sorts of hell. She was deeply upset, obviously, over the loss of her child. But then there was all of this crusading and protesting and marching and a funeral and apprehension of criminals and trials, court dates, appeals. There was a ton of shit going on, right? And it felt like she couldn't breathe and really process everything that happened August 23rd, 1989, when her whole world was chopped, screwed, and twisted inside out. So, you know, Moses just wanted her to be in the forefront alongside himself and the other, um, the others. And she did finally, you know, at some point she did step, start stepping up and showing up for these protests and it was amazing for her to hear the crowds chanting her son's name in solidarity it was also very hurtful seeing what a lot of people on the other side were doing in response to that so you know, um, Diane grew tired and unfortunately, like many couples who lose a child, um, statistically they say that, you know, like when you, when you sustain a loss like that, a lot of couples don't make it and they were unable to continue their relationship. So they would eventually break up and then finally Moses would end up passing away in 2003. Now, following Yusuf's murder, his friend Christopher Graham decided it was best to leave the neighborhood and rebuild his life because, like, it was too stifling, it was too painful, there was just too much going on. While counseling was offered immediately, 
to fellow hate crime victim because that's exactly what they were uh friend uh and friend luther sylvester he declined and he fell within himself for some time due to his survivor's guilt it would take a lot of time wrestling with the events of August 23rd, 1989 for Luther to emerge from the darkness and begin living the life Yusuf would have wanted him to live. Joseph Fama has always asserted his innocence. Pasquale Rauchi would end up building a career set working at New York City hip-hop radio station Hot 97 for over 20 years until the 2020 HBO Max documentary Yusuf Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn dropped and Pasquale, a.k.a. Patty Duke's involvement in the murder of Yusuf Hawkins was, uh, was spotlighted, he was immediately terminated. Gina Feliciano, who at the time of Yusuf's murder had been marked as a pariah in the neighborhood, went into hiding because there was an allegedly a $100,000 hit put out on her life. Six weeks after the murder of Yusuf Hawkins, Gina appeared on 60 Minutes in disguise to be interviewed. During the interview, Gina questioned why she should feel guilty for the death of Yusuf Hawkins. Um, blame that the community and media had been placing at her feet. During the interview, Gina couldn't get into much detail, but she asserted that she hadn't made any threats towards Keith Mondello, and it wasn't, and it was her prerogative to associate with the people she found a kinship with, and it didn't make any difference their race. She told the interviewer she had to stand for something in life. And not backing down to the racism in her community was her stand. A few days following the verdicts of Joey Fama and Keith Mondello, Gina was arrested for drug possession. She spent her life running away from all of this hate, ridicule, and scorn put on her as a scapegoat for the actions teen males in her community chose to follow through with. Gina would end up struggling with drug addiction, bouncing around from place to place as she was like in hiding, um, working as a topless dancer. By the time she was 23 in 1994, Gina was a mother of a two-year-old half-black daughter and had suffered a drug-induced stroke. While I haven't conf while I haven't confirmed it, it's been said that she has um, passed away. <sighs> Yusuf Hawkins has been remembered and referenced in various ways for murals and opening shots of Spike Lee movies featuring a photograph of the handsome 16 year old to the 2021 renaming of the corner of Verona Place and Fulton Street near the home he grew up in, in in Brooklyn on what would have been his 48th birthday, Yusuf Kareem Hawkins Way. There are also songs like Keep It In The Family by Anthrax and documentaries like the, the one I've been mentioning throughout the whole episode, Yusuf Hawkins, Storm Over Brooklyn, allowing his name to never be forgotten, nor what had happened to him. So what had happened is this. What had happened is this. Whew. First of all, 
This was wrong across the board. Yusuf and his three friends in 1989 should have been able to travel from East New York, Brooklyn to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn without fear menacing and basically like it felt it gave it gave sundown town vibes at the time here's also an update on Bensonhurst by the way Bensonhurst is no longer a predominantly Italian American community it is now an uh, a mixture and it is primarily an Asian American community and I really love how that em- that emigrant story has continued and evolved and we've now moved into a different phase of new traditions and cultures being uh, fostered in this community but back this shit up okay so let's go back Yes, it's true that the members of this community, because this was something that a lot of people brought up. Well, we're not racist. We didn't own slaves. We didn't have anything to do with that. You're absolutely right. And I will not blame an entire community. However, I will say this. The majority of your community had closed-minded views. And why did they have these narrow-minded views? They have these narrow-minded views because when they were immigrating and they found out that there was a hierarchy, superiority becomes, and I say that because through media, through the things that were being put out there out for the culture to see if you're emigrating before world war ii or post world war ii and now you're coming into the civil rights movement and you're seeing how uh whites and blacks differed from one another via segregation in the south how the civil rights movement had spurned all of these marches, these protests, how the whites reacted to these marches and protests, how blacks were perceived as being less than, how they were considered to be dirty, how the drug problems within within the communities were more of a black and Hispanic problem and not a white problem. Although we know that that is not true. None of these things are true. However, these are a lot of the things, the garbage. Um, There's a rapper, his name is Action Bronson, and he's got this song called Dimitri. And there's one line in the song where he said that his grandparents learned English watching Martin. Okay. And and I've, I've got a lot of friends whose grandparents or great-grandparents or so on and so forth had immigrated over here and they learned English watching television because they couldn't afford to go to night school or uh, hanging out with their American family members with whom they were living with and things of that nature. So 
okay, if Action Bronson's grandparents learned English watching Martin, how many grandparents learned English watching All in the Family and watching Archie Bunker say the bullshit he was saying? I'm just saying, like, there's, you know what I mean? And I, because I'm not just putting, I'm not putting this off on, like, hate is, hate and racism are learned. They're learned. You're not born with it. So these people were not born in their countries of home origin hating people. And if you never saw a Moor or a black person or whatever you want to call them and a person of African descent when you were living in Italy or Sicily at the time, which I find that kind of hard to believe because close proximity but the sidebar um if you didn't see him then before you came over here and it was a culture shock for you you didn't automatically hate them you might have been afraid a little bit because you fear what you don't know but you didn't hate the hate was learned and it was taught because of the way that people of color were being mistreated during the civil rights movement and before that, during Jim Crow, period. I understand when Italian-Americans began immigrating, when Italians began immigrating into the country. I understand Ellis Island. I learned a lot in school. So there's that. So you got this pocket that became more and more insular, and they walled themselves off from all things. Now that's not always a bad thing because I mean obviously there was some bad shit going on in other neighborhoods and they wanted to protect the integrity of their neighborhood and keep the bad shit out. But keeping the bad shit out doesn't mean that it's okay to say, "Oh, we don't want anybody of color in our neighborhood because you're all the root of all that's evil," essentially. Okay? It's not cool. We're not all bad people. There are bad people everywhere. Okay? So, you got that. Then you've got what I like to think of as the Spider-Man meme where there's a bunch of Spider-Men pointing fingers at each other because they had to have a fucking reason as to why we were so riled up and ready to just hate, 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 and fight, 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 fight. So why not point a finger and use Gina Feliciano and her integrated Rolodex as an excuse for, you know, getting riled up? I don't blame Gina Feliciano one damn bit. When you're comfortable in being a funky human being, I like making you uncomfortable. But making you uncomfortable doesn't give you carte blanche to think that it's okay to go grabbing a bunch of weapons and try to beat the shit out of people. Um, I don't think that the entire neighborhood of Bensonhurst at that time was inherently racist. No, I don't. But what I do know for sure is that the response that the neighborhood gave when Yusuf and his friends 
entered the neighborhood. And after Yusuf's murder. Spoke volumes. Uh, to the ignorance. That was festering within the community when it comes to race relations. Um, the levels of insensitivity towards Yusuf's family in those moments were appalling from the majority of haters. I remember being a kid and knowing that Bensonhurst was not a neighborhood that I wanted to hang out in, that I was not going to be allowed in Bensonhurst. I knew this as a kid because the reputation of us not being welcome in that community had been established for quite some time. Hell, I even remember being like 18 years old and meeting a guy meeting a guy from Bensonhurst he was really cool but um when he said he was from Bensonhurst you've never seen a girl moonwalk so fast I was like ah hard pass bruh like I already know that I am not the person that you could bring into the neighborhood and everything would be okay I know that people would have problems with that so I would just say, let's just avoid all of that nonsense altogether, you know, and just be friends and I'll never come to your hood. You're totally welcome to mine, but I would never go to yours. Um, so, yeah, they're using they were using Gina Feliciano as a scapegoat. And unfortunately, what I find so devastating is that by using her as a scapegoat, this entire situation haunted and followed her for her entire life. And while she may have been making some poor life choices prior to turning 18, I believe that this incident pushed her deeper into doing the destructive things that she ended up doing, um, such as her substance abuse issues, um, as a way of coping. Because while she said in that 60 Minutes interview with all of the cockiness and bravado of an 18-year-old, why should I feel guilty? I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't holding the gun. I didn't shoot him. You're right. You didn't. You didn't. You you had no parts in that. But his murder still happened by by the hands of people in your neighborhood. And everybody in your neighborhood blamed you. And so whether the guilt the guilt was not was not uh properly assigned she didn't need to feel guilty about that but she did in some capacity because she's a human being and so that was her coping mechanism and subsequently you know it spiraled and I really feel like had that incident not happened she might have been able to get a handle on her dabbling with drugs before it got out of hand 
uh, oh, yeah, so there's that part as well. Um, you know, I think that it was very necessary to highlight and spotlight what was happening in Bensonhurst. I mean, similar things were happening in Boston. Um, but it needed to be highlighted so that we could work on bettering ourselves as, as a nation. People, I believe, had this weird idea of people in the North or on the East Coast as being a little bit more refined and sophisticated and not having those bones of racism within them. When this happened and like um, when some incidents happened in Boston and other places like that, it really pulled back the curtain on what was going on in that region of the country during this time where we should have progressed much farther. And, um, you know, it was rough. Now, here's one thing. I'm going to get into it. I, I glazed over Russell Gibson. Yes, I did. I kind of just, you know, rushed right through who he was and what he stood for. Here's my problem with Russell Gibson. Watch the documentary and watch his um his attitude about everything. I get it. I've been the person who was one of a handful of minorities who's lived in a community that was primarily white. I did that quite a few times throughout my life. I've experienced ugliness, as Russell also did. He said so himself. He said that, you know, when he was a kid, he was being, he was being accosted and shit. And then finally, you know, the kids were like over it. And they, you know, let him into the fold. Okay. I've been there. Here's what I've also been a part of. I was 16 years old. Yeah, I was. I was 16 years old. And I was sitting at a coffee shop on a Friday night shortly after school got back into session after spring break. And I'm sitting there showing my friend these pictures from spring break where I traveled to New Jersey. Showing her pictures of my little boyfriend, showing her pictures of my family, all of this stuff. Now, earlier in that day, there had been an altercation between another friend of mine and some other girl in school. And the altercation got out of hand and I, in support and solidarity with my friend, went up there to the main office with her and we had a talk with the principal because the whole thing was just way too out of hand. I fucking forgot about it afterwards because I have a life. So we fast forward to that evening. Now, I'm out with my friend when all of a sudden a group of approximately 30 people come moving across and they see me. And the main person in this group is that same girl who had beef with my friend. And she's got her friends all hyped up and in a tizzy. 
And she says some things about how she should kick my ass and how she should fuck me up. And then one of her friends gets in my face. And this young man starts talking about how if I fuck with said girl, I fuck with the family. I didn't know what the fuck that meant. And so being the smart ass that I was, I said, I don't understand what the fuck you just said. English is my primary language. I don't speak wannabe homie G. And so he then says, I should spit in your face. Now in this time that he says this, I stiffen up. Now there's a lot of people, including adults inside the coffee shop. I'm sitting outside at a little table right outside a window pane. And there's a boy, bless his heart, who's open mic nighting, trying to play his trumpet, literal, okay, for the group inside the coffee shop as this mob is continuing to accost me. And now the girl is in my face and she's off to the side of my head and she's whispering bullshit about how she should fuck me up and I have now gone stone-faced and I am not moving I am staring off into the the distance beyond the fucking distance I am off in la-la land waiting for this shit to get over with or for them to beat me into a bloody pulp or whatever the fuck is gonna happen but because I'm not giving her the energy that she wants and I'm not responding to her fuck shit. She gets kind of bored. As she's walking off, she says, I hate Kim. First of all, don't ever fucking call me Kim. My name is Kimberly. The five extra fucking letters account. That's okay. I'm a hard Kimberly. But anyways, she says, I can't fucking stand Kim. She's such a fucking nigger. Now, she said this shit as she's walking away, and the group is starting to walk away. And so I look at my friend who's sitting next to me, and I whisper, did she just call me a nigger? When all of a sudden, the group whips right back around to me, because, god damn it, their bionic ears could hear me whisper, and... The homie G who said he ought to spit in my face hawked a big ass fucking loogie dead in my face. And then they all disperse. And I run into the coffee shop screaming uh, again. And I know who was playing that trumpet. So I'm so sorry for like interrupting your song, bro, again for the umpteenth time. But um, the shock of having someone spit in my face was what fucking pushed me over the fucking limit. I run into this place. I'm screaming from the top of my lungs. Get this, you know, get, get, get this person spit off of me. Like, I'm freaking the fuck out. There's like a chewed up ass bar of soap. Oh my gosh, this chewed up ass bar of soap in the sink area in this tiny little bathroom in this tiny little coffee shop and a strip in the middle of anywhere USA and 
then all I could think of is, I can't take my black ass home. We've got a student directory. It lists my phone number and my address. And my dad's out of town. These kids could have a hell of a night fucking with me. Or a hell of a weekend. I ended up spending that night with my friend who was with me. And then going home. Now, I was fine during the day, but as soon as it started to get a little bit dark, I ended up calling my English teacher, explaining the situation. And this woman had the flu, and she drove to my home, picked me up, and allowed me to stay at her home for the night, and then returned me back to my dad the next day. When I got back to school, we pressed charges, um, and... Basically, there was like a little restraining order or whatever where that kid wasn't allowed near me. And frankly, when she did try to apologize, I could see the bullshit and I wasn't for it. And I stood 10 toes down on that. Um, I say all of that to say this. You can be the person who live and, and, and also that didn't cause me to feel any type of way about a whole group of people good or bad okay I didn't think of all white people as the devil's incarnate for the fucked up shit that happened as I was growing up and even into my adulthood um because people are ignorant I also while living immersed in a community that is different from my own, did not forget what the fuck I am and try to be someone that I'm not. Russell Gibbons got sucked into being one of the handful of people who was acceptable enough to be in the fold of that community at that time and he allowed it to go to his head so on that night I really don't know that he recognized the fact that he very well could have been on the receiving end of a beatdown coming into that community had he not been a member of that community just based off of the color of his skin And, um, it's tragic. You know, I really think that in that moment, he forgot that he was even, if, if he even knew at that time, and I'm, I'm being serious because he said that he had had an identity crisis that he had to reckon that he had to deal with and a come to Jesus on that. Like, I feel like in, in, in that moment when all of that happened, he really probably thought he was one of the boys. Fist pump. And that's problematic as well. So. Listen. Everything fucking sucked. Everything was fucking ugly. And. It didn't need to be that way. These kids didn't need to be out here wiling out. It's funny that the news made such a big stink about wiling 
only when it was African-American youths in the New York metropolitan area who were prescribing to these menacing attacks on people. Um, when it was youths of color, black and Hispanic, who were wiling out, they were portrayed rightfully, you know, in, in the negative light that they should have been portrayed in. But when it was their white counterparts from other neighboring areas that were wiling out on innocent African-Americans, there was a dismissiveness in some of these instances. Oh, well, you know, we're not racist. We just don't want, we just don't want people in the community or we're not racist. We just don't like black people. That one gentleman, um, told everybody um you know uh boys will be boys um you know they're just juiced up you know they're just trying to be wise guys they're just trying to impress the uh the uh the organized bosses in the neighborhood all of these types of things you know we're we'll always come up with a continuing stream of excuses to keep these particular men out of trouble and placed on a pedestal. But as we could see, as we saw here, one of the handful who were swept up and made held accountable for their actions did get charged for Yusuf's murder and therefore justice for Yusuf was in fact doled out and I believe that where the judicial system didn't dole out things for some of these people, uh, karma and history came back to bite some people in the ass and give them the comeuppance that they so rightfully deserved. Hey, you guys. This was a long one. It was a rough one. It was a hard one. I'm so sorry, sorry, sorry for hitting you guys with all of these super duper hard content ones. No, I'm not. We need this shit. If we are remiss from talking about these things, if we aren't knowledgeable of the things that have happened in our past, we are going to continue to repeat this cycle. Yusuf Karim Hawkins is no different than Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd. As far as I am concerned, his name is up there with all of these other names of, of people who have died senselessly. And we never corrected whatever was fucked up in the system in 1989 and look at where we were just a couple of years ago and where we continue to be because we're not correcting it so maybe we should fucking remember our history you guys I'm, I'm sorry this is like a big one for me so I'm a stick maybe we should remember the things that have happened in our past so that we are not condemned to repeat them all right you guys well that 
is the episode. I will be back very, very, very soon. As in, like, I promised you guys the 26th. So, we've got a week. And then I'll be back with another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. And here is your outro music. Also, don't forget, Denver metro area people, hit up Candace for Precious Pets 5280 on the Facebook or Precious Pets 5280 at yahoo.com. Pet grooming, pet sitting. Hit her up. Bye.